Well, good evening. We're going to go ahead and get started, if you don't mind. And uh, hopefully you have the notes that were back there on the table. And uh, I told you that chapter 17 and chapter 18 are very difficult chapters in the book of Revelation. Um, just because there are so many different thoughts and, and uh, opinions and interpretations. And so last week we went through verses 1 and 6, 1 through 6, um, looking at the reference to Babylon and how it tied back in to the Tower of Babel and uh, why it was significant and etc. And tonight, the purpose of the text is found in verse 7. It says, But the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast. And so that is the focus of this chapter, explaining this to us. But there are also some very other interesting things in this chapter. And so... Tonight we're just going to look at the beast and what that means. And then next week we'll probably come back and we're going to look at the book of life. I told you in chapter 13 the, about the verse about that the Lord Jesus Christ was slain from the foundation of the world and uh, what that means. But yet as I have studied uh, the book of life, you know, there are so many verses, some verses it says that the Lord won't blot you out. And there's other verses that says that you will be blotted out. And so there is just a ton there just to unpack was the names written before the foundation of the world, from the foundation of the world. And so next week we're going to try to unpack that whole issue. And so uh, it might take us a couple weeks, um, but we're going to look at that in its entirety because there are so many things that come out of that. But what I do want to call your attention to is that when the Bible tells you what the purpose of a text is, that is the main thing. And when you read the Word of God, always make sure you keep the main thing, the main thing, all right? And so other things are neat to study, like the Book of Life and, and uh, different things from this chapter. But remember, the purpose of the chapter is the overall theme. And then picking that out is always exciting, interesting, and controversial. But tonight, we're going to look at this beast. So we looked last week that the woman is the apostate church, right? Whatever that looks like, whatever that world religion is, we don't know for sure. But yet we looked at what it's going to be characterized by, right? Wealth, um, prestige, uh, apostasy, right? It's going to be all of these things. And so if you remember, and I'm just going to give you some of these verses for you to write down in your notes section, because we just don't have the time to go through all of them. But if you remember in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, we saw the beast that came out of the sea and that received power from the dragon, which was Satan. We saw that this beast was a true what? Monster. If you remember in verses 1 and 2, it was described it had 10 horns and 7 heads with 10 crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. And so we saw a little bit of that, and these are the verses I want you to write down. 
It's very similar to the beast we see in the book of Daniel. And it's so important that as you study Revelation, that you have to go back and study Daniel. And so in Daniel chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, and verses 19 through 27, we see these reference to a beast. But sometimes the beast is two different entities. Sometimes the beast references this end time empire. And the seven heads and the ten horns indicate that this beast will be a coalition of nations that rise to power to subdue the earth under Satan's control. And so when we see in chapter 17, these and chapter 18 about this last empire, um, one interpretation is that this will be this revived empire that resembles the Roman Empire, and that will be the power that controls the secular world, and it will use the apostate church to bring people into the fold. And so they will work hand in hand. If you remember in chapter 13, verse 3, the beast will receive a deadly wound and be healed of it. But it also says that he will exercise authority over the whole world and demand worship. We know that it says he will wage war against God's people. We know that he will prevail against them for a time. Revelation 13 verse 7, Daniel chapter 7 verse 21. However, we know that the beast's time is what? Short. It's, you can read it in Revelation 13, verse 5. You can read it in Daniel chapter 7. That he is going to only be permitted to have absolute authority for 42 months or that three and a half year period. And so we need to know always that this beast um, that we're looking at is most likely this revived Roman Empire. But it's very important, though, that not only in the book of Revelation, but also in the book of Daniel, that he will be defeated. That's very important to remember, because when you read through the book of Revelation, and you get to chapter 15, 16, 17, it seems like the judgment is coming, but yet there's still this fight, right? Like, they've hardened their hearts. They keep on rebelling. They keep on refusing the things of God. And it's very important, I think, to remind ourselves that we have seen this attitude from many world leaders in the Bible. If you were to flip to Daniel chapter 2, please don't do that for the sake of time, right? We see that Nebuchadnezzar, right, and all his wickedness and evilness and his desire to um, build the large statue and, and he had the dreams, right? Uh, we know, though, that it's very important to always remember that God is in control, that God has a purpose and a plan in all of this. And so when you flip down to the end of chapter 17, I want you to read verse 17 with me. Verse 17 with me, because the wickedness that they are achieving, God has a purpose in it. Look what it says in verse 17. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So this earthly kingdom, this earthly coalition 
does not exist for themselves, but what? For Satan, right? To Satan to use the Antichrist and all of this to achieve his purpose. But yet, never forget that even in the most wicked of moments, that God is still at work. Remember what Joseph said to his brothers, right? What you meant for evil, God used for, for good. Now, does God condone the evil? Does he cause the evil? I do not believe so. But he uses even the wickedness and sinfulness of man to accomplish his purposes. And so when we looked at Babel and we looked at the tower, right? They were building that as idol worship. They were building it to avoid the judgment of God. And God humbled them. We looked at it throughout the Old Testament. Every time the nations of the world came against Israel, even when God allowed them to fall into judgment, he ended up humbling them and bringing the people back. And so even in the judgment, even in this rebellious wickedness, God is still at work. And so for us who think we have it bad now, know that we do not have it bad compared to what it has been and what it will be. Okay? I know we don't like what's going on in the government, and I know we don't like what's going on in the world, and we should never celebrate. We should never turn a blind eye. But we still have it better than any Christian generation. Right? We are still blessed. And so we need to remind ourselves that that God is still in control, that God is still on the throne, and that God is still at work. That doesn't mean we endorse it or we approve of it, but remember that it's going to get much, much worse. Okay? Thoughts, questions before we jump right into this, explaining who this beast is. All right. So, but the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery. Now, this word for mystery is this idea that it is not something man can know unless God reveals it to him. All right. It's something that God knows, God can explain, and man is the receiver of this. Now, friends, this is not new. There are many things in the Bible that I don't understand, that I can't answer. Right? It's a paradox, right? How could Jesus be fully God and fully man? Well, I don't know how you can be fully. Or some people like to say the word truly, but how can that be? Right? How can God be sovereign and in control of everything, but then yet man is responsible for the choices that he makes? Right? So there are things in the word of God that are, un, are above our pay grade, right? God says his ways are above our Ways. If you worshiped a God that you could explain everything about, he wouldn't be very magnificent, magnificent at all. But God is bigger than us. And so when we read the word of God, we always read it for truth, for, for to know God and to love God. But sometimes we need to understand something that it's not for us to understand everything. And we get that in how our life plays out, right? Bad things happen and we say, God, I know you have a plan. I don't see it yet, but I'm trusting you in that. That's usually how we refer to a mystery. But in John's case, he's been watching all this judgment, all this correction. He's been watching this woman, this vision, all of this. And he's just like, I don't know what to say here. And so the angel says, I'm going to reveal it to you. 
I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. Now, as we look here, it's very important to study this and to just kind of unpack where we've seen this in other places. Well, we've seen it in Daniel. We've seen it in Revelation chapter 13. Ten could very well be a ten-nation alliance, or it could give the idea of a complete alliance. If you remember, um, if you're old enough, as the European Union began to unfold, that's what everybody said, right? It's the revived Roman Empire. But yet, when it took on more than ten nations, they were like, oh no, right? Our biblical prophecy is not right. But sometimes ten can mean complete. It can mean a totalitary of something. And so don't get so hung up on, on what it isn't in today's world because God is going to reveal what it is, all right? Just like when people say, well, it has to be the Roman Catholic Church. We don't know that. Don't read into something that, that we don't know for sure. Could it be? Absolutely. Could it be something that morphs out of that? But we have to be very careful to just believe what God tells us. And so, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And so this really is exactly what we observe in chapter 13. Speaks about the beast who once was and now is not, but then will come out of the abyss only to go to his destruction. And so what we see here is, it is talking about something that is under demonic influence, right? Something that is being used by Satan and the forces of Satan to accomplish what Satan thinks is his ultimate rebellion, his ultimate victory. Now, some people will say, okay, John was talking about different emperors, different uh, kings. Um, but yet what we see here is this understanding that what was is not but will be what it is telling us is no matter what you believe that it's still to come right I tried to lose weight I'm not losing weight but I'm going to try to lose weight in the future right it did it's not but it will it is explaining that to us because it is trying to show us that these things will happen in the future now, it's very, I think, interesting to see that we saw many of these um, uh, uh, demonic releases, if you remember, in some of the chapters earlier where um, the Bible talks about that and, and how uh, millions of demons have been released onto the earth. But yet we never need to forget that this word for abyss, if you have the King James Version, it's bottomless pit. Um, and so, you know, it's really this idea that we've looked at that the part of hell that has been created and specifically holds the certain demons that the New Testament says Jesus went and preached to um, this is what it's talking about now like I said I think Sunday night in the sermon from Isaiah chapter 5 talks about the borders of hell are always expanding and I, I've really been studying that verse a lot and we'll talk about that next week since it's not the main focus tonight all right but what you and i need to see from this is there is an enemy that is coming right there is an enemy that is 
coming. It should remind us that Satan never stops. For my personal life, I need to be reminded that Satan never stops. I never get to a point in my walk with the Lord where he admits defeat and says, Jake, you're just a super Christian. You've just got it figured out. I went to the ball game last night and, uh, and uh, somewhere, uh, North City, and, and uh, Aaron and Sondra sat behind me. And I don't know how many times I had to look out my phone and go, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. <laughs> because when the winning point was served and they were, and they were in the middle of substituting out, I wanted to go, you can't do that! What is wrong with you? I was just saying, love, peace, joy, him. Right, because there's never a moment when the sin, sinfulness of Jacob Gray is gone. Right, that battle between the flesh and the spirit is always ongoing. And so when we look at this, we need to know that until the Lord defeats his enemy for the final time, Satan is always going to be at work. He's always going to be fighting. He's always going to be using the, the elements at his disposal to try to attack the things of God, which we know now is the church, right? That is where Satan attacks the church, right? Israel is already in a rebellious stage right now, but I believe the future is promising for them. And so today he is working in the lives of believers. He is working in local churches. He is trying to devour and to destroy and so when we read this, it's so important to just remind ourselves always of the continuousness of Satan's attack. If you remember in, I think it's First uh, or Second Corinthians 16, um, it talks about being on guard. It talks about watching. It talks about standing. And if you're in men's Bible study, I can't think of where it's at, but it's somewhere in one of the Corinthians, I'm pretty sure chapter 16. And the idea of that is that when the church is under attack or when a believer is under attack, it gives us this idea of being on guard, right? When you're on the wall, you are watching for the enemy to attack. And then it says, stand like you have been attacked. Don't run. And then it says it's another term. I can't think of which one it is. Maybe it's it's I can't remember, but it's, it's the idea that after you've been attacked, there's another wave coming. And if someone wants to find those verses, that would help me out tremendously. And it gives the idea that stand. And when you have stand, stand more. Right? It gives the idea that when love is involved, the church is involved, the things of God is involved, that it's going to continually come. But yet at the end of that passage of Scripture where it says to fight and to fight and to fight, it says, let all of this be done in love. Why? And I shared this the other night, so for you in the men's Bible study, just suck it up, all right? When we are fighting for what we believe is right, it is easy to get in a mode that I'm always fighting, but I'm not fighting in the right way. I'm defending the faith, but I'm not doing it out of love. That's why the Bible tells us as parents not to provoke our children to... Right? You can go from correcting your children in a way that honors God to correcting them in a way that does not honor God. And so why am I doing that? The same thing as a believer. If Brother Dennis sees something in my life that shouldn't be there and he comes to me in love, 
and says, Jake, I think there's something in your life that's sinful. It's, I'm concerned about you. I love you. Thank you. But I can promise you there will be other people that will come up to you in your life and they'll be like, hey, I want to point something out to you. And they no more love you than a, you know, they don't. And so why you do what you do? Same way about speak the truth in love, right? You can speak the truth and be a jerk. I do it quite often in my house. Now my wife, she's more of the love side and not the truth. Not that she lies, but she's just going to love you and not tell you. I'm going to tell you and love you, but it's going to be way, way, way down in my heart, all right? And so we see this from tonight, and so I just want to encourage you that as we look at what God has called us to do as a church, as individuals, as we see it unfold in biblical prophecy, that he is going to keep working. And it goes on there in verse 9 and verse 8 says, and those who dwell on earth will marvel. Right? They'll be amazed by this. The fact that, that this power, this authority, this, this accomplishment for evil prevails. I told you we were going to look at the rest of that verse next week. All right? But look at the very end of verse 8. When they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. So it's repeated. So it's significant. It is important. All right? And so what we've seen is power that comes from demonic influence. All right? Questions? All right. Well, let's see who's involved in this kingdom and this power and this wickedness in verse 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. Now, that kind of doesn't fit, really, when you think about it in the context of what it's being said here. We're talking about wickedness and demon and all this stuff. But I think, it, in my personal opinion, it, it's really calling to mind that we are to know this. We are to have wisdom, but yet it has to come from God. Because the world will think that they are wise, right? They're wise in their own strength. They're wise in their own wisdom. But yet that is not what real wisdom is, right? The Bible talks about the foolishness of our wisdom and our pride. And so it's just that we have to be on guard. We have to know what it means. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, many people view this in regards to the simple fact that um, Rome is built on seven hills. Some Bible commentators believe that this is about seven Roman emperors, um, but yet most likely that's probably not what John is referencing. Some people view this as the kingdoms, the great kingdoms that the Bible addresses who have came and then who have fallen. If you want to write these kings, these five kingdoms down, you would write down Egypt. We've seen them in Exodus chapter 29 and 30. We see the great empire of Assyria, We've seen that in Naaman chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. We've seen the great empire of Babylon. We saw that in Isaiah 21, verse 9. Then we see the empire of Persia, who followed after that. We see that in Daniel chapter 10, verse 13. So those are five kingdoms, right? Those could be five hills. 
But then the six could be Rome, right? That was the empire of their day. And then what would be the seventh? The seventh would be the great world empire that is going to revive itself. And then the final expression of the end time beast or wickedness. It could be that. And so this kingdom is built upon these great empires and the wickedness that they have brought and shown and participated in. Because if you jump down to chapter 12, and this is just, like I said, we'll look here for just a moment. The tenth horn which you saw are ten kings which received no kingdom as yet. So that's what we're talking about, this future kingdoms, right? We've seen the world leaders, we've seen the empire, we've seen the, the uh, false religion, but these could be ten specific kingdoms that are going to come. Or it could be a completion of kingdoms together. Uh, it really could go back and forth. So the horns represent authority, they represent power, um, all of these things that are to come. You say, could those kingdoms exist today? I don't know. Just like you could say, does this apostate church exist today? I don't know. It could be something totally different that's going to come. We really don't know. But I want you to go back to verse 10. Because when it says there are seven kings, five have fallen, one is, and, has no, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, all right, don't miss that. Just like I was on a diet, I'm not on a diet, and hopefully I will someday be, and I don't hope I will be on, I'm just saying, no, I'm kidding, I will be on one, right? So it's again talking about something that is going to happen in the future. But don't miss this. This is what brings me great encouragement. And when he comes, he will what? Prevail for a long period of time. He will win the victory. No, he will what? Continue a short time. Remember that as you read through these things, you read through the wickedness to come. Even think about the own trials and tribulations that we go through in our own life, that they are but just a season. Right? Even the Bible says that about life in James chapter 4, right? Life is but a vapor, right? Don't worry about what tomorrow brings because it's not promised. And so when we look at the trials that are to come, it's so important because in verse 11, it says here, and the beast that was and is not and is himself also the eighth is of the seven. And is going to perdition. And some, some Bible scholars believe here that what you have is the Antichrist could be considered seven. But yet he is working for Satan. So Satan could be the eighth. And we know that if you've read the book of Revelation chapter 20, that the Lord is going to take Satan. He's going to bind him and he's going to throw him into the abyss for the thousand year period. Could it be that? Absolutely. Are there other interpretations? Absolutely. So, um, but what we see here is, is don't be so caught up in the trees that you miss the forest, okay? Don't be so caught up in exactly everything, but just recognize that whatever happens, whatever goes on, that the Lord has it set for a limited time. It is a limited authority, and it is going to be a total defeat. 
total defeat. And that is so important as we look at this because so many times we, we see this attributing power to Satan he doesn't have. You know that Satan is not God. He is not equal to God. What are the three main attributes about God and who he is, right? That he is omniscient. And that means he's all-knowing, right? Satan is not all-knowing. That he is omnipresent. So he is what? Everywhere. everywhere. The Bible never says that Satan can be everywhere. If you remember his interactions with God, where have you been, right? So you were there and now you're here. And then the third would be omnipotent. He is all powerful. Remember that Satan is a created being. The Bible says he is a powerful one. If you remember, right, uh, when they were fighting over the body of Moses, whether that was a real event or a figurative event, it's not the significance here, but yet it shows us that he has authority, he has power. But never forget when you read through the word of God, when you're struggling in the problems of your own life, that greater is he who is in me than he that is in the world. And I don't believe we live that way. Now, I'm not trying to upset you. It don't matter to me if you get upset. But honestly, I don't know if we live that way. We tell ourselves we do. But just imagine or think about the last time you were under spiritual attack. My first response is always, woe is me. Well, I just can't believe that person is saying all these bad things about me. Do they not know what I have done for, for them or for the Lord, right? Well, what do they mean they didn't like this, or this was a problem, or that was a problem, or, or I shouldn't have this struggle, or I, I am the world's worst, and woe is me. Instead of saying, God, what are you trying to show me? God, what are you trying to teach me? God, what have I done that has brought your correction into my life? That's the one none of us would admit. But you do know that there are times when God's correction comes into your life because there is sin in your life. I know every time we have a problem, it's someone else's fault. But I want you to know, in my life, a lot of it is my own fault. Right? I am being corrected by God for whatever is in here that shouldn't be here. But I'm thankful for it. Because whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And so it reminds me that I am his. And that he's not done with me. And that I'm not too broken for him to use. I'm not too hopeless for him to correct. But I, I encourage you with what you go through. Do you really believe, hey, God is in control of this. God is, God is all powerful. God knows what's going on. Now, you're here on a Wednesday night and you're pretty spiritual people. So I know you don't struggle with this like I do. But tonight, I really encourage you as you begin to go through trials or difficulties or problems, I would write them down. Write that problem down. And then if you don't have a uh, a concordance, something like this, to find every time a word is used in the Bible. Google. All right? If you're struggling with depression, Google Bible verses about depression. Not, not about people that are depressed, but Bible verses about overcoming depression, right? Or if you're struggling with fear and anxiety, Google Bible verses about fear and anxiety. And you will find that whatever problem you are facing, the word of God gives a promise to it. 
You say, well, Jake, I'm struggling in my marriage. There's Bible verses about it. I'm struggling with lust. There's Bible verses about it. You're struggling with pride. There's Bible verses about it. Why? Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And what does that mean? That means the spirit of God that lives within you. What happened when you got saved and the spirit of God indwelt you? And the Bible talks about all the things that he does, right? He convicts us. He encourages us. He seals us. He leads us. He guides us. All of these wonderful promises. God living in me is greater than one of his creations attacking at me. And don't forget that. As we read through this, to take encouragement from that. Take encouragement that who the Lord is and what he is able to do triumphs over the things of Satan. Now, do we believe what Smiley says on television, right? That all God wants you to be is healthy and wealthy and wise and wonderful and all of those things. No, but what we do believe is that no matter what we go through, that in our weakness, his strength is made perfect, right? He brings himself glory. When we go through situations, when we go through struggles, that there is no other way to explain it except God. Lucas says this from time to time. Is he in here? Good. All right. I'll use it. <laughs> so have you ever asked Lucas when their first Sunday at 10 Mile was? And Mark's heard this before. It was Jake's first Sunday. And he will then go on and say, because I couldn't believe it. And I had to see it for myself. Well, that's true. I went to high school with Lucas. Played golf with Lucas. Right? I grew up with Lucas. And so he said, that can't be right. Right? Unless the Lord is doing it. And friends, in your life today, I ask you that simple question. Most of us like everything to be in the realm of our ability. Right? I want to raise my kids and I don't want them to stress my abilities as a parent. Right? I want a job that allows me to be financially wealthy enough that I don't have to worry about God showing up. But friends, when you come to the end of yourself, that is when God is the most glorified. That's why salvation is the greatest miracle because it's not something we can do. <clears throat> Baptism is great, but that's something you can do even if you don't get saved. You can get wet up in a, in a hot tub. The Lord's Supper. You can take the Lord's Supper even if you're not a Christian. That's something you can do. But when someone experiences the new birth, when someone goes from being dead to being alive, being an enemy of God to a child of God, right? Being away from God as into adopted into the family of God. It's all Him. And so that might not be where you're at today because you say, Jake, I'm already a Christian. I'm already a child of God. But it might be whatever <laughs> struggle you're carrying, right? Anxiety, fear, discouragement, depression, whatever the sin is you're carrying, I want you to remember that even though it seems like Satan is winning, it almost seems like his power is unchecked, that God has him on a leash. And just like Job, we see, Job's wife said, curse God and die. His friend said, curse God and die. Job says, no. Right? Job recognized that all of his blessings came from God. And if God so choose to, he could restore it 
and multiplied. And if you've read the end of the book of Job, that is exactly what happened, right? Satan was allowed to work for a season, but God never forgot Job. And so when we see about what goes on in this period of time, never think that God is not in control. Questions, thoughts? I know I got a little off track there, but we're going to be back here next week, so we can always get back on track. You have to say that louder one more time. The Lord may have to fight against you to fight for you. Sometimes we're our own worst enemy. Absolutely. What was it Billy Graham's wife said if she would have married every man that she prayed for? She had been married six times before she married Billy, right? So that's absolutely true. We are our own worst enemies sometimes. The Lord has to correct us, discipline us, chasten us. To get the us out of the way. Other questions, thoughts, comments? We're making good time. Don't slow us down. No, I'm just kidding. Well, I'm just kidding. You briefly mentioned the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. So like when OJ tried to blow on a bit, and those emperors very much fit this. Because you have from Julius Caesar to Claudius mm -hmm. is the first five. Nero would be the one who is. And then it's Galba, who was only a Caesar for six months. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's there's, there's a, you know, and that, and that could be the first century fulfillment of this, not mm -hmm. that that's the final fulfillment of it. Well, I think, though, when you type back to chapter 13, that the one appears to die and then return, that it doesn't fit. Now, some people say that Nero faked his own death and came back. Well, he, if you look at it as... The Caesars, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, starting with the very beginning, they wanted to worship their God. Mm -hmm. You know, they had the, the pinch of uh, incense to Caesar, and so, I mean, that's where the, you know, the blasphemy is on, on that head of Caesar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so like I said, some people view it as the kings that are represented in the Roman Empire at that time. But, you know, and then, well, in, you know, with the mention of the seven mountains, the seven mountains are one thing, that's the place. Mm -hmm. And then it's also there are seven kings. So there's mm -hmm. two different sevens there as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Other questions? All right. So we go back down to verse 12. Then ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet. But they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. So it says that it's not happened yet, but that it will happen. All right. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them. So that's why I disagree with the first century fulfillment. Because it talks about who they are and then who they fight. Now, some people would say because the Roman Empire fell, then that is the Lord's doing, right? That he prevailed then. But I think when you read through all of the references of the Lamb and the Lamb overcoming, you are going to tie that into chapter 19. 
when Jesus returns and destroys his enemies. And if you flip over there, which we've looked at it a bunch um, in this, right? Starting in verse 1, it says, And after these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude of heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. And then if you go down and we see this praise and this worship and all of this in verse 9, it says what? Then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb, all right? And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God, and I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, right? A foretelling of what will come. And then we see these wonderful verses in chapter 19, verse 11. Now, right, it gives us the idea of what this happened and then this happened. Now I saw heaven open up and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had the name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And you know that we go on there, and it talks about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and all of those wonderful things that were going to happen. But I say that because when you go back down here, right, in verse 14, it says what? These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for he is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Now I go back to chapter 19, where we just were reading, and I stop on purpose. If you go back to chapter 16, and it says, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So right, we see here that this kingdom, right? This ten kingdoms that give themselves over to the Antichrist wages war against the Lamb who is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and he defeats them, right? When you see this left reference in the New Testament, it is always about these big climat uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Climactic? No. Is that right? Climactic. Somebody that knows what, what's the word I'm looking for here? Climactic. Climactic, is that right? I don't, my English teacher is looking for what my English teacher, but. All right, well, you can fix that word later. <laughs> right? These big events, right? King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the land, this great battle that's going to take place. And it goes on and says, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. We're going to look at that next week when we look at the book of life but if you remember what it says in chapter 19 right it's talking about what it's talking about not only the Lord but it is also talking about the us right who comes with him in different places and that we're worshiping him there in the beginning of chapter 
19. And so it's just very fitting, I think, that when you read language like this in the New Testament of big events, right, of great defeats, of referencing who Jesus is, it's, it's really important to put it in its context, right? This defeat's not going to happen quietly or, or, or secretly or, or hiddenly. It's going to be a huge climax, whatever that word event is, all right? And so that's why I believe it is going to happen in the future. It is going to happen at the end of that seven-year period, and we will see it, and the world will see him destroying his enemies. But the last thing, and I'll be done, and then we could have questions because we're almost out of time. We see that even though we have this pagan religion and we have these earthly pagan kingdoms working together, right? There are two individuals in this, right? The woman and the beast, right? And so if we're looking at an apostate uh, religion in Rome, uh, that would have not, that would have been either emperor worship or what is to come, right? We're looking at the kingdoms that are to come. And so what he says there is, then he said to me, they've been working together, right, to accomplish the purpose of the Antichrist. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw, where the harlot sits, are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues, right, worldwide. And then the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, Eat her flesh and burn her with fire. So at this point in the tribulation, whether it was a three and a half year period, where at, the secular empire says we've got all we need out of this religion and we don't want her anymore. And so whether that's the city, whether that's this religion, they are going to take everything from her. And when you look at Revelation chapter 18, you will see that we will see in more depth the fall of Babylon the Great. And we'll see this explained even more in its entirety. But what we see here is, and I titled that, there is no honor among the wicked. All right? The original phrase is, there's no honor among thieves, right? But what we see here is very fitting, I think. This secular world kingdom, which I think it could possibly be Islam, but you don't have to agree with me, okay? I believe it will turn on whatever this world religion is. And if you remember how she was described earlier in chapter 17, if you remember in verse um, 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup. When you go back to verse 16, it says, make her desolate. So it's talking about all this wealth that this world religion had. They're taking it, right? They want the wealth that she has been able to accumulate. But it doesn't just say gold and precious stones. It also was talking about what she was what? Wearing. So desolate, they're taking her wealth from the monetary precious gem side of it to these fine clothing. They're taking all of that from her. And they are leaving her with nothing. With nothing. And so this is very important, I think, because what we see here is the simple understanding 
that while the Antichrist at first will be very much okay with lying to the Jewish people and telling them, hey, you can have your sacrifices, you can have your temple, right? The rest of you, you guys can worship however you want, this religion of world peace, this, this, this person who's going to show up and promise everything. That at some point, which I believe is the three and a half year period, the abomination of desolations, he's going to say, nope, I want your money, I want your wealth, I'm going to rock everything that you have accomplished, it is mine. And he is going to use those ten kingdoms, which said they give their authority to who? To the one, right? That's why I think it has to be future, because these ten kings are operating under the authority of one. And as, as far as I can tell, right, even if it was the European Union, they don't answer to one. It's a deliberative body. You say, well, it's NATO or it's whatever ever organization it is. They're not offering it to one. And so I believe what happens here is these earthly, worldly kingdoms take everything from this, give it to the Antichrist for his purposes. But it's not just his purposes. Look at verse 17. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose to be of one mind. When was the last time the world was of one mind? Genesis chapter 11. They were of one mind, one language, one purpose. And what did they try to do when they were of one mind and one purpose? Rebel against God. And God has given them every opportunity to repent. Do you remember the verses about the judgments and they wouldn't repent and they wouldn't repent and they wouldn't repent and they wouldn't repent and they wouldn't repent. And God now says, you have hardened your hearts. You have put yourself in a position that I'm going to bring you all of one mind for rebellion to make your last final stand against me. And that's what we see in chapter 18. And then Jesus returns in chapter 19. You see, friends, God has a purpose and a plan to work and to save and to move. But friends, God also is a God of judgment. We have to remember that. I believe that when the Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, that God has a desire and a love for sinners. But we must never forget to tell people that if you die apart from Jesus Christ, you will spend an eternity in hell. I do a lot of funerals, as you know. And it's always a privilege to be asked to do a funeral. But some funerals are harder than others. Some are hard because some of you I love a lot. All right? Not that I don't love all of you a lot, but let's just be honest. Some of you have been here since I've been here. Um, some of you just you watch my kids grow up. And we, you get close to people. And so they're hard, right? I, I can think back to so many of them. I, I think back to Jan, who... That was her own fault. We let her sing at her own funeral on the video. Uh, but after she sung Midnight Cry, I was trying to preach like a crying little girl, right? That was awesome. It was powerful. But it was like, that was, I felt terrible for the family because I couldn't stop crying, right? They're hard sometimes because of the relationship, but they're hard sometimes because some of you, I know your faith. Now, I can't know your heart because only God does. But when I see the fruit, there's a lot of good fruit, right? Or I think about Sister Mary when she passed away and, and just the simple fact that, like I said, two years ago, she sat in my office and gave her life to Christ. And I, 
of that story. So while it was terrible to lose her and for her family, but I know right absent from the body is present with the Lord. And so those are hard, but they can also be a time of celebration. But I do a lot of funerals when I call the family. Their immediate response is, now you know they weren't very religious. Hey, that's not a problem. Religion doesn't get you to heaven. Well, you know they didn't like church, okay? You, you know, church doesn't make you go to heaven. Well, you know, they really didn't like the things of God at all. That's when you have to start saying, that's a scary place to be. Now, I preach the same funeral, as you know, almost everywhere, but recently I didn't. Recently I had no indication, no knowledge, nobody that could tell me this is what happened or this is at a time in his life. And so I just had to preach about how under, from Ecclesiastes about everything has a season, right? Everything has a season, time to live, time to die. From James chapter 14, right? That life is but a vapor. And then I preached from John chapter three, verse 16, Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And then I preached just about the simple fact that if you want to go to heaven, you need to repent, put your faith and trust in Jesus. But I didn't get up there and say, so-and-so's in heaven, so-and-so's not in heaven. But I can tell you, it's easy to preach a believer's funeral. And it's not when you don't know. But friends, there's nothing we can do about it, is there? But what I think has done the greatest disservice to lost people is they've showed up to a sermon or a funeral someone was an absolute heathen they didn't love the things of God and the wife or the husband is a great believer and they say well praise the Lord they're back together again and all our kids are going well I don't think mom and dad went to the same place but yet the preacher stands up there and talks all about heaven and why they're there and what it's like for them and friends that's dangerous people need to be reminded that God is a God of judgment and he is a God of love. Friends, if you die apart from Jesus Christ, there is no club, there is no organization, there is no church that can get you there. And friends, so I preach a lot of funerals and I get in my car and I think, Lord, all I hope is that I was faithful. I just hope that I was faithful. Because you don't want to be on one extreme. You don't want to be on the other extreme. But you just want to be faithful. So I think about that all the time, all the time. And friends, in your walk with the Lord, you have to be willing to talk to people not only about the goodness of God, but also the judgment of God. That God is willing to forgive, that God is willing to show mercy, that God's mercies are anew every morning. Yet that God is a God of holiness, perfection. Sin does not enter into his presence if we're not covered by the blood, we must call people to repent and be born again. So next week, we're going to look at verse 18. No, not verse 18. Verse 8 about the book of life. We're going to start in the Old Testament and look at all the places it talks about the book of life, the book of living, names being blotted out, names can't be blotted out, and we'll try to unpack what that means. So to the best of our ability.